there is a man who can meet the needs of every human being. And that man is Jesus of Nazareth. And I wish to tell you that he is not just Savior. He is not just Lord. But he is all. Which means that every spiritual gift, every spiritual virtue, every ministry, every truth is incarnated in a person. And the Christian world today, oh, I've been guilty of this. I grew up in it. We chase things. We chase doctrines. We chase truth, gifts, patience, long-suffering. We chase these things. We want these things in our life. And we see them as things. But saints, they aren't things. They are words that were forced into existence to describe an aspect of a person. You don't need anything. I don't need anything. We need Christ. And having Christ, you have all things. Patience is a person. Hope is a person. Truth is a person. And I've been a Christian for a long time. I know many of you in this room have been too. And I have discovered this this one thing. And that is, everything wears out. Eventually. And I don't just mean in the world. You know, whether it's money, success, possessions, pleasure, a hobby. I'm not talking about that only. But I mean things in the spiritual, religious world. Everything wears out. You pick up a new fad in the Christian world and you chase it. It's eventually going to wear out. Somebody gives you a new technique. It's exciting at first. It'll wear out. You get a new method for ministry. And you run with it and, man, you're jazzed, you're enthralled. It's going to wear out. You get a new spiritual discipline. Oh, wow, this is awesome. I'm really connecting with the Lord. It will wear out. There is only one thing that will not wear out. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He never wears out. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet He is new every morning. And you will never exhaust Him. And I will never exhaust Him. And we can spend the next few months, the next few years, the next thousand years talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will never exhaust Him, yes. brothers and sisters. God. And we have a lot of preachers today and a lot of people who are in ministry and they're talking about things. Yes. But you don't need things. Right. You need Christ. Right. Amen. I need Christ. Show me my Lord. Give me Christ. I've had enough of things. I need Him. And uh, that's my heart. I have developed a, a disturbing habit about every time I speak at a conference or I'm, I'm at a conference, I'm listening to those speakers, I, I'm listening to them speak and I'm counting the number of times they're mentioning my Lord. And I have heard Preachers, very well-known, famous preachers, preach for an hour, an hour and a half, and mention Jesus once, twice, sometimes, not at all. And then I open up the book of Ephesians, and I look at the first chapter, <laughs> and I count the number of times that Paul of Tarsus is mentioning the Lord Jesus Christ, and every sentence is dripping over with Him. This man, Paul of Tarsus, was obsessed 
consumed and Christ was coming out of every pore. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what ministry is. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what a minister is. If you cannot give Christ, you cannot really give much of anything. And this brings me to a point that I left out last night when we talked about rejection. We talked about brokenness. We talked about bitterness. I left a point out and and I was talking to one of the brothers and he was just sharing with me about the Lord and, and his journey and where God has him. And he said something that sparked my memory and I left a point out. And the point is this. Today in Christianity, in our world that we live in, Christian world, there is such a push and an emphasis on everybody being equipped and prepared for ministry. And the way that that's framed and couched is that the focus is on your gifts and your skills and your abilities. And so consequently we have gift inventories. You ever taken one of those? What are my gifts? Let me take the gift. Let me check the boxes here. I want to find out what my gifts are. And then we have strength indicator tests. Where are my strengths? What are my weaknesses, right? And then we have leadership skills, seminars. How am I going to become a leader? And brothers and sisters, this is so far off base as far as I'm concerned. First of all, it puts the focus on you. When Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And he even said, without my Father, I can do nothing. But secondly, Paul Tarsus gives us the ingredients for ministry preparation. And I would like to read it to you. And this is never talked about because it doesn't sell. And let me tell you what's really going on. Young men, young women who are 17, 18, 19, and in their early 20s, you have what's called youthful enthusiasm. You are jazzed about Jesus and you want to get other people saved. And there's nothing wrong with that. But people who are trying to build movements will take your youthful enthusiasm and use it to build their movement. And when you hit 25 years old or plus, you will burn out. Because you are running on something that was not Jesus Christ. And I don't care how gifted. In fact, the more gifted you are, the more broken you need to be in order for God to use you in the way that will last. What you do, what He does through you will have eternal value. The more gifted you are, the more broken you need to be for Him to use you as bread in His hands. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. You can write on this and, and highlight it. God's way of ministry preparation. And I wish that every young person who's jazzed for the Lord would hear this. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Not from our gifts, not from our strengths, not from our leadership skills, It will be of God and not from ourselves. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And here it is. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus, that's what ministry is, saints. So that the life of Jesus may be manifest through our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over for death. We're constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. There, sisters and brothers, is your ministry preparation. Death in you. So that life, His life, can come through the broken vessel. It's brokenness. It's devastation. It's shattering. It's suffering. That doesn't preach. That doesn't sell. That doesn't build movements. Mm -hmm. But dear saint of God, let me tell you something. If you put your hand to the plow of God's work and you say, I want you to use me. I want you, Lord, to use me as a vessel for your kingdom. Then you are asking him to bring the cross in your life. And it never looks like you expect. And it's never pleasant. I've got a friend who says the cross, when it comes into your life, is like being put into the hands of a God who has gone mad. And I hear Christians all the time, I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand what's happening. This must be the devil. Well, you know, the devil is the handmaid of the Lord. He is the tool of the Lord. Paul said that. God sent a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, so that I might be weak. For when I am weak, he is strong. Brokenness, saints, is the way to ministry. Death is the way to life. And God will put you in straits. He will bring crisis into your life. And that is his hand meant to break you so that you can be broken bread for others. We don't hear that today. And to a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old, early 20s, that doesn't sit well, especially if you're an American. Am I right about that? We don't like hearing this. Why is the church in the state it's in? Why are Christians so weak? Why are we so ineffective? It's because we're not broken people. We're just trying to figure out what the gifts are. Now, I was supposed to say all that last night. Last night we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ came into this earth and from the very beginning of his entrance into this planet he was rejected. He was rejected in Bethlehem. All the doors were closed to him so he had to be born where animals were fed. He was rejected in his own hometown Nazareth where he grew up when he began to preach. The people rejected him. Is this not the son of Joseph? We know his sisters, his brothers. What is he talking about? A prophet is not without honor in his own home. He was rejected by the Jews, his own people. He came to his own and his own received him not. He was rejected in Samaria. They turned him away. He was rejected by Jerusalem. In fact, they put him to death. 
and he wept over Jerusalem. How I wanted to gather you. I have come to be your savior, but you would not let me. He was rejected by family members. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples. Every quarter in which he stepped, he was rejected from birth to death. He even said it, the son of man has no place to lay his head. The foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but I who created all things, I, the one for whom all things were created, as Paul says in Colossians 1, I have no place to lay my head. There is no place that will receive me. There is no home for me. Isn't that ironic? But there was an exception. Right, brother? What was the exception? Nothing. A plus. Extra credit. Little village, obscure, unknown, unnoticed, maybe a few hundred people lived there, called Bethany. It was the only place on earth where your Lord can call home. It was the only place where he could lay his head. And he spent the last week of his life there. He would go into Jerusalem in the day. He would preach. He would be rejected. And he would come back at night with his disciples and he would lay his head in Bethany. For he was received there. He was loved there. He was appreciated there. And my point last night was God wants a Bethany on this earth again in every city and in every human being. A place where he can be received fully and totally and completely, a place where he can lay his head, a place where he can call home God's favorite place on earth. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a beautiful picture. Because he is rejected in our time, not just by the world, but he is rejected even by his own people, just as he was when he came. And saints, I would say to you that even we, Reject him at times, not even realizing. So I want to give you a few snapshots today about Bethany and what it means. And this morning, I'm going to give you two snapshots. And then tonight, I'm going to give you the most important one of all, the glorious image of what Bethany really is at its heart. Moving, touching, stirring, life-changing, heart-stopping. The first time that Jesus entered into this village of Bethany, where he was received, was when Martha, and I introduced you to Martha last night, welcomed him into her home. He had just been rejected in Samaria. And he was on his way to Jerusalem, and he passed through, and his disciples are always with him. Sometimes the text doesn't mention them, but they're there. And he enters into the little village of Bethany, and a woman named Martha, Luke says, received him into her home. And that was the first time he came to this family, and he fell in love with them there. Her sister Mary their brother Lazarus and Simon who was a leper who I believe Jesus healed in fact in the book I tell the story of how Jesus healed Simon and then that's how Jesus was invited into the home of Martha Mary and Lazarus so it's kind of a sanctified imagination to kind of put the story together 
And she receives him in her home. And Martha, you know, she's the practical type. She's so hospitable. She's such a servant. And she knows who the Lord is. She's probably heard him in Jerusalem speak, mesmerized. No man spoke like this man. So she has an inkling of who he is. She knows he's a prophet. She receives him into the home. And she wants to prepare the very best for him. A meal for him and his disciples. And the text makes this clear in some of the versions. The New King James Version makes it clear in some other versions. But it is clear that Mary was helping Martha with the food preparations. She was part of it. And they're preparing probably all afternoon. In that day, they had uh, the evening meal at night around the 11th or 12th hour, which would be sundown. And Jesus is there with his 12 disciples, and Martha escorts him and his disciples into what was known as the public room. And the public room was the room where only the men stayed. The men sat there. Now on that day, and some cultures are like this today, you had quarters in the house for women, and you had quarters in the house only where the men were. Well, the public room was where the men were, and they were all there, the disciples, no doubt Lazarus, no doubt Simon, the father. And then you had Mary and Martha in the courtyard preparing the meal. The courtyard was the kitchen. And Jesus is there in the public room when he begins to teach. And the disciples are at his feet. And in that day, a disciple took the posture of sitting at the feet of the teacher or the rabbi. That was the posture of a disciple. And basically you were a sponge. You were opening your heart, you were opening your mind to whatever the teacher was teaching. And you were at his feet. Remember the passage in Acts where Paul of Tarsus learned at the feet of Gamaliel? He was a student, he was a disciple. And let me say something about the word disciple that we often miss. We're often taught that a disciple means a pupil or a student. Well, that's true, but it means more than that. It actually means an apprentice. It's someone who is not just getting information, but someone who is learning a way of life. That's different. Kind of a journeyman, you know, living with the teacher and learning all that he has to give you. So there they are. Jesus is teaching. The disciples are at his feet. Lazarus is at his feet. Simon, no doubt, is there too. And Mary and Martha are preparing this meal for them. And suddenly, Mary does something outrageous, scandalous. She leaves the courtyard and she walks into the public room where she is not allowed. And she takes her place at the feet of Jesus. Now you have to understand that in that day, none of the other rabbis or teachers ever had female disciples. You did not do that. And what's amazing about this is Jesus doesn't say a word about it. He just keeps on teaching. And Lazarus is mortified. What on earth is my sister doing? But as I mentioned yesterday, Mary never speaks except once in the Gospels. We only hear her voice once. But she is an intuitive, sensitive woman. And somehow she knows that Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet, will have no problem with her, a woman, sitting at his feet and being a disciple. Now you have to understand, 
Today in the Christian world, in many segments of the Christian world, women kind of are viewed as second-class citizens. I did not hear any amens on that. If you're a sister in here and you have felt at one time that you were kind of second-class, would you just raise your hand? Okay, several of you. Well, in that day, you can raise it to the tenth power. They had no place. She knew that it would be okay for her to do that. And Martha is in the courtyard and she is aghast. She's not only aghast, but I can picture this, you know, <laughs> Lazarus is dumbfounded. The disciples have seen this before. You know, Jesus is always surprising them. So they're like used to that. Yep, here he goes again. He's just doing what he does. <laughs> he's breaking customs. Yeah, he's had women sit at his feet before. It's no problem. I can hear the banging of the pots in the pans in the courtyard. And Lazarus knows that Martha's angry. Because he knows this woman. And she can't take it anymore. And she storms into the public room. And she protests and complains. And she blames Jesus. And she says, Lord, do you not care? But I'm in the kitchen slaving away. My sister has left me. She actually used that word, left me, which indicates Mary was helping her. Tell her to come back in here and help me so I'm not all by myself. And Mary does not give one word of self-defense. And Lazarus is embarrassed. Okay, I'm adding to it. I admit it's not in there, but I'm adding to it. I see him. He's embarrassed. He's hurt for his sister Mary. And I think he's, he's angry at Martha for doing this. Probably wants to boil her in olive oil. Uh, but Martha's fuming. I mean, she's got smoke blowing out of both ears. And there's silence. And Jesus disarms her because he says her name twice. Martha, Martha. Whenever Jesus says your name twice, Saul, Saul, Peter, Peter, he is showing affection. And he gives her a gentle but stern rebuke and rises to the defense of Mary. And he says, you are troubled about many things. But there is only one thing that is needed. There is only one thing that is necessary. And Mary, despite that this was scandalous, despite that it's not the way things ought to be, despite that nobody does this, despite that it's out of the tradition, she has chosen the good part. She has chosen the better part, and I will not take it away from her. Wow. Now, I am impressed that Mary did not defend herself. And I am impressed that Jesus rose to her defense. I am impressed that Jesus mildly and gently reproves her. There's not one word of criticism to Mary. There's not one word of complaint. 
And I can see Martha just kind of dropping her head. Composure changes. She goes back into the courtyard and she finishes the meal. And when we see her again preparing a meal, she's not troubled. She's not distracted. She's not concerned about what other people are doing or not doing. But she's still serving. But there's a difference. Her service was wrapped up in herself. And because of that, her eyes were on what other people were doing or not doing. Listen to that. Her service to the Lord was wrapped up in her own self, her own identity. And because of that, she was critical of other people and what they were doing and not doing. And I believe, if I was back there and we can go back, I would put good money on this. But Jesus broke convention again. And I believe that he probably said when the food came out and Mary and Martha were getting ready to eat in the courtyard by themselves, which in that day the women and men did not eat together, unless you were family. But if you had friends, the men would eat in the public room, the women would eat in the courtyard. I, I believe Jesus would say, let's all eat together in the public room and had a meal together. And they did have a meal together later on, sometime later. I have a few points to make about this, and there's a lot. I mean, we could we can spend the next two hours talking about this. There's so much here, and it will be in the book, God willing, that I'm writing. But I want to make a few points this morning. One, to receive Jesus Christ properly is to receive all that he is. And we have in the body of Christ today tension between Christian movements and denominations and traditions. And the problem is, and the tension is the result of taking one part of Jesus, receiving that part, and rejecting other parts. So we have one movement that is saying, Jesus is the justifier. We want Him. He is the justification of all sins. He's the one who justifies us. And that is the most important part of the Lord. And we need to center on that. And we need to preach that. And that is the main thing. And then we have another group over here that says, no, that's not the most important thing. Jesus is the justice giver. And He wants justice in the world. And we need to be those who engage in justice and bringing justice to others and engaging in social justice and helping the poor and the oppressed. And now we have tension between these two groups. And dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is justifier and justice giver. You cannot split him up. You cannot divide him. And when you do that, and when you pitch one against the other, you are dismembering the Lord. He's both. And then we have one group here that says Jesus is interested in building community. He's a community builder. And so we have to focus on that and build community and build relationships and be the community of the King and get to know each other and, and center on Christ and have meetings that center on Him. He's the community builder. And then we have this other group here that says He is the evangelist. And He's interested in reaching out and bringing His salvation to those who don't know Him. And that's why the church exists. The church exists to be a mission, to go out. And these other people say, then that's not why the church exists. The church exists to be a community, something for God. And so you have this tension between these two groups. 
I watch Christians fight over this. And these groups tend to be very insular and very enclosed. Many of them don't know any, any person that's not a Christian. All their friends are Christians. All the people they spend time with are their fellow brothers and sisters. And then we have these people over here, and they have a very shallow community life. It's all about going out and winning souls and saving souls and whatever language you want to use, but preaching the gospel of the lost. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is both community builder and evangelist. And I will tell you how to solve the tension that exists between those two things. The answer is that you receive him as both, but you understand that there is a season for both. There is a season for community building. And you have to give attention to that. Because it takes time to build community. But saints, you cannot camp there forever because you will be a navel-gazing, ingrown toenail. (laughs) There will come the season to go out together. And you have to yield to that season because that's the Lord's life flowing through the group to go out. But that season will end because if you stay there and that's all you do, you will become shallow and you will eventually burn out. So there is a season for both. Have a nose to discern the season. And then we have a group of Christians that says Jesus is, he is the judge. He is going to bring his wrath upon those who reject him. And you have those who say, Jesus is the mercy giver. He's the meek and mild Savior, compassionate. There's no wrath in Him, see? Well, saints, He's both. Why break Him up into parts? That's like saying, I want the hand, but not the foot. I want the eyeball, but not the ear. No, to receive Him is to receive all of Him. But there's something else, and something that touches us deeper, I think. And that is to receive Jesus Christ properly is to receive all who are part of him. And that includes the women. That includes our sisters. They have as much right to be a disciple of Jesus Christ as the men. And in fact, as I have pointed out in another place, in the Gospels, the women outshine the men when it came to discipleship. They stayed with him to the very end. You do realize that he had women disciples. Luke calls them the women. Just like he says of the men, he calls them the twelve, shorthand. And then he talks about the women. There were these women who followed him. They actually met his needs financially. They gave to his ministry. Mary Magdalene was one. And when the disciples checked out, when Jesus was taken and they saw a cross erecting on a hill and they ran like 60 it was the women who stayed now i think john was there also at the end but they watched him die they never left his side and when he was dead they were the ones who were still following him even though he was dead so sisters you are just as much a disciple as any brother and in the gospels even more so May the men honor the women in the kingdom of God. And then we have a whole group of Christians today that says, well, if you do not accept John Calvin in your heart, you will not be saved. (laughs) 
Then we have another group of Christians that says, if you do not accept John Wesley in your heart, you will not be saved. I think the first one's more biblical because his initials are JC. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, who is John Calvin? Who is John Wesley? Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? But servants of God who have been dead a long time. Thank God for their writings. My favorite is T. Austin Sparks. You'd better accept him into your heart. (laughs) But you hear my point? These are all men and women who had different aspects of the Lord. And to turn away a child of God is to turn Jesus Christ away. He said, if they do not receive you, they don't receive me. And if someone rejects you, they reject your Lord. So that puts the onus on us to be very careful not to turn another brother or sister away. And sometimes their theology is messed up. But they still have encountered him. That's not the place to say, well, you're a heretic. Maybe talk to them a little bit and find out if they're open to hear the better way. They may be. If they're truly in the Lord, they will be open to hear. You know, we don't have it all figured out. None of us. Even John Calvin, God bless his soul, was not perfect. None of us can claim immaculate perception. We all can be corrected. The question is, has God received us? And if we name his name, the real Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, the Savior, the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, he accepts us. To properly receive him, we must receive all whom he has received. To properly receive Him, we must receive all that is in Him. All that He is. Well, Lord, I'll take your teaching ministry, but I don't want your healing ministry. I like your ministry of kingdom, but I don't want your prophetic ministry. No, we need all of who He is. Well, let me give you another snapshot. We can talk a lot more about this. In fact, you're going to take it away and do that yourselves in a little bit. Lazarus, whom Jesus came to really love in a special way. He had a lot of affection for Lazarus. Fell ill. Mary and Martha were very concerned about their younger brother. So much so that as the sickness got worse, they sent word to Jesus. They knew where he was. He was in Perea, which wasn't terribly far. And they sent messengers and they said, the one whom you love. They knew he loved Lazarus. The one whom you love is sick. And Jesus, in the face of a crisis that concerned one of his own disciples, and not just one of his own disciples, but someone he really loved, does nothing. He let him get sick. Hear me now. Jesus loves this man. And he let him get sick. Not only that. As time went on, his sickness got so bad that he died. And your Lord intentionally delayed 
until this man died, which is hopeless. It's hopeless now. But he waited until he was dead for four days until he showed up. That's beyond hopeless. Now, there was a Jewish belief. We find it recorded in the writings of the rabbis later, after the first century, but it could have been around in the first century. We don't know. But the belief was that when a person died, the spirit of that person hovered around the tomb for three days. And on the fourth day, the spirit of that person left. And the death was now permanent. I think that's interesting. Because it, it shows us that this is permanent death now. <laughs> Four-day death. Death wherein corruption and decay sets in. And now you have a corpse that's starting to smell. And he waits four days after Lazarus is dead. And then he takes his disciples and they go to Bethany. And he comes to the gate of the city. And Martha gets word that he's there and she runs out. And I believe that she's angry at him. Why did you let my brother die? Where were you when we needed you? Have you ever thought that in your head? Where's the Lord when you need him? He's too late. The first thing that comes out of her mouth. Probably what she and Mary were saying while Lazarus was sick. If Jesus was here, our brother would be okay. And it comes spilling out of her. And Jesus says, you know, your brother is going to rise again. And she's, well, of course, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection. The last day when we're all raised again. That doesn't help me now. And he says, no, Martha. The future has broken into the present. I am the resurrection. The future has broken into the present. Sisters and brothers, you have a Lord who carries the future in the present. The powers of the age to come were incarnated in this man, Jesus, when he was on earth. And he's still alive. And that's why we as believers, as Hebrews says, taste of the powers of the age to come. The future has come forward in the present, in the new creation. Well, she doesn't understand what he says, and he says, can you bring Mary here? So she rushes to the house. There's mourners everywhere. There's crying. There's bitter grieving. This family was loved by the people in Jerusalem. It's only two miles away. But they had many friends. Their friends in Jerusalem were mourning and weeping. Mary is on the floor, which is the posture of one who mourns. They did it for seven days, and boy, it was wailing, and loud crying, and women were hired to do this. And Mary's there weeping. She has her friends, and Martha comes over and whispers, says, the teacher is here. He's outside the village. Mary straightens, runs out, and the other women who are there, who are comforting, thinks that she's going out to the tomb to, to mourn Lazarus' loss. But she's not. They follow Mary. And she sees Jesus and she falls at his feet. This is the second time she's at his feet. And she's weeping and she says the same thing that Martha says. Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would be alive today. He would not have died. And Jesus of Nazareth, your Lord and mine, begins to groan. And the Greek tells us that this word here means he's angry. He's indignant. And I believe that he's angry at death and the pain that it brings. You know, God's greatest enemy is not sin. It's death. The child of sin. That's his greatest enemy. And he groans within himself. And now we see something we have never seen before. We watch a God who is shedding tears. Jesus bursts into tears and he begins to weep. The tears of Mary brought tears to his own eyes. And you can hear the passage in Hebrews 4. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He weeps with those who weep. I want you to understand something. Jesus, our Lord, although he is fully God, he's fully human. And when you weep, one of his own children, when you're in pain, when you're in sorrow, he feels it. He weeps with you. That's comforting to me. I mean, this sight of Mary, his own disciple, weeping brought tears to his own eyes. And the onlookers said, well, gosh, he really loved Lazarus. Look at him crying. And he says, where's the tomb? Where have you laid him? So they bring him out. And you know the story. It's arresting. It's heart stopping. He asks for the people there to remove the stone which sealed the tomb. Which I think is, is brilliant because it showed that this miracle, which was his greatest miracle, was really a real thing. It wasn't an illusion. They were actually participants in it. And I can see everybody you know, holding their noses. They think that <laughs> they're going to get a whiff of a stench. And then he, he shouts. He yells. And he commands Lazarus to come forth. And Lazarus jolts into consciousness. Now he is bound from head to toe. He has a head cloth and his whole body is mummified. But he must have had a little bit of wiggle room to move his legs around. He probably couldn't see anything. It was dark. With the head cloth, he couldn't see. Somehow he managed to get up, and now we have one who was dead coming through a tomb back to life. And you can hear the shrieks and the gasps and the, the screams and the... <gasps> And then Jesus, again, brilliant, loose him and let him go. So here they are, his friends, unbinding him. This is not a ghost. This is a real person who's been raised to life. And that was a picture, an image, of what was going to happen to Jesus not long after. Well, there's a lot that we can say about this, but I want to make one point. Jesus Christ, if you haven't realized this, by now in your life, you're going to realize it. He has a disturbing habit of not showing up on time. He has no problem leaving you in the lurch. 
He is a God who shows up after you're dead for four days. Beyond human aid, beyond human capability. But somehow, in some way, he has another habit. That beyond our expectation and our imagination, he comes leaping over the hills and he rescues us and raises us from the dead. And usually it's not the way we thought. Sometimes it's not the way we want. But he always rescues us. Sometimes he will deliver you from the problem. Many times he'll deliver you through the problem. But it is done for the glory of God. And while you're going through it, he's weeping with you. Praise the Lord for the tears of Jesus. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And the Greek says he burst into tears. He just, he couldn't handle it. He just started crying. The tears of Mary made him weep. What a Lord. And there is coming a day, of course, we know this, where everyone in the grave will hear the shout of his voice. The voice of the Son of God. And he will raise us all back to life. And that is our hope. Well, we're going to talk about the next snapshot tonight, which is my favorite and it really brings it home as to what Bethany is. But let me tell you what Bethany is. Bethany is a place where Jesus Christ is received. All of him is received for who he is. And it is a place where all who are part of him are received. And where women and men are made full-fledged disciples. And we sit at his feet. And there's been this tension between Mary and Martha, you know, and you, you often hear commentators say, well, you know, Martha, those are the busy, active types, and the Marys are the contemplative, quiet types, and, and so we need a little bit of Mary and a little bit of Martha. I, I think that's wrong totally. Mary is never, ever condemned. She's never criticized. To say that, you know, she's one of these people who's too heavenly minded to be too earthly good is not true. She was helping Martha before Jesus came into the public room. Let me tell you what my experience has been. Certainly the Lord doesn't want anybody to be a quietist, contemplative, ingrown worshiper who doesn't care about anybody else. And who is not interested in serving the Lord outside of worship. Certainly. I think we're all clear about that. But Mary had her priorities right. You see, it is possible to serve the God of serving God. I'm going to run that by again. It is possible to serve the God of serving God. And this is what captured Martha. She was so focused on service that her eyes were on everybody else and what they were or weren't doing. And I have met Christians like that. They're so jazzed and zealous about going out and reaching out that they become judgmental and critical and they want to know, well, what are you doing to help the poor? What are you doing to share Jesus with other people? How many non-Christians do you know? And that is the spirit of Martha before the Lord changed her heart. You do not know what spirit you're of. There is only one thing that is needful. And that one thing isn't just to sit at the Lord's feet and not do anything but worship Him. It's to hear His Word and respond. To be a disciple. A disciple is a follower. And the Christian life 
If you try to serve God in your own energy, which many people do, and your own zeal, and according to your own mindset, and your own direction, A, you will burn out eventually. B, you're really not going to help too many people in the long run. There will be very little spiritual value to it. Why? Because it's you and not him. And see, you will be a critic of other people. I find no fault with Mary. She was a disciple. She listened, she heard, and she would respond. And you will find out tonight just how beautifully she responded to the Lord. She knew who he was. And she gave everything for him. But every Mary I have ever met in my life, there are exceptions, obviously, Every Mary I've met used to be a Martha. They used to be a Martha. They were a Martha in their early years, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Don't know how to say no. Busy, 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 serving, 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 serving. Working with their churches. We need you to do this now. Can you do that? Oh, yes, I'll do it. Somebody asks for a need. Oh, I'll do it. Never can say no. Busy, working, serving, tirelessly, self-sacrificially, to the point where they come and they say, I'm tired. And the Lord gives them a revelation. You know what that revelation is? You're serving, but you're not following. You're working, but you're not loving. It's you, it's not me. And they become a Mary. And the Lord's heart is satisfied. And they serve. But it looks totally different. Because it's coming from a different source. And would to God that the young men and women that I meet who are Martha's. Don't have to wait till they hit 40 and 50. Or even the 30's. To learn the lesson of becoming a Mary. It's one of the hardest things to get across to a young person. Where's the source of your energy? Do you know him? Yeah, you may know how to serve, but do you know him? And I want to say something else about the Lazarus incident. In Bethany, not only do we receive all whom he has received, not only do we receive all who he is, but in Bethany there will be a crisis. In Bethany, there will be a death. But in Bethany, there will be a resurrection. And when there is suffering and when there is crisis, you and I want an explanation. But God wants to give us a revelation of His Son. And every crisis that you and I will face is an unwelcomed, undesired opportunity to discover Jesus Christ in a new way. And he will always surprise us. Praise the Lord. Because he's that kind of God. He'll never fit into our box or our understanding or our imagination. He always will break out. And that's what makes him so epic. I wrote a book called, a little e-book called Epic Jesus. It's a message I share. I couldn't find another word to describe him. 
What a Lord, what a Christ. A God who weeps at the tomb of his friend. Who's touched with the feeling of our infirmity. Sisters and brothers, I have one word for you. Your Lord is looking for a Bethany. He's looking for a Bethany in you. If you're part of a church, he's looking for your church to become a Bethany. To receive him in a world that has turned the cold shoulder on him. But more than that, he's looking for a Bethany in you and in me. That we individually would become Bethany's. A place where he can lay his head. Praise the Lord. Now, it's your turn to talk. Here's what we're going to do.